This is Chris. Welcome to episode 16 of X-Lapsed. And today we're going to discuss a series that's uh, going to be a little bit difficult to look up any information about, uh, mostly because if you type New Mutants 2019 into Google, you're likely going to be met with results that show you like some awful cosplay masquerading as a movie. Um, it actually took me a little bit of doing here to just to just Google the uh, on-sale date. I wanted to make sure and confirm that the uh, on-sale date in the book was actually the day it went on sale. So it took me a little doing because it kept wanting to show me, well, crap I don't care about. Now, as I record this, uh, about 10 minutes ago, I just received my latest DCBS shipment. Uh, that's Discount Comic Book Services. I get a monthly box, and uh, it came with three Road to X, Road to X of Swords issues. So that, uh, it looks like it's going to be here before we know it. Um, actually, when I started this program, I was hoping to be caught up by then, by the time X of Swords hits, but uh, I think we'll still be lagging a bit behind. Uh, I'm guessing that maybe by the time the event wraps up, we'll be up to date. Uh, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> I, I, I am recording these things a couple of days in advance, just in case life gets in the way, so I can keep this on a regular-ish schedule, but... Uh, you never know. I guess we'll see how it goes here. But today, let's hop right into New Mutants number one. Now, this one had a January 2020 cover date. The story's called The Sextant, written by Ed Brisson or Brisson and Jonathan Hickman, with art by Rod Reese or Rod Rice. I am so sorry. I, I can't pronounce anybody's name. Hickman, I can say. Everything else, I'm lost. Uh, Let is by VC's Travis Lanham, designed Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Biso White, Sobolski, $5 book. It's going to be interesting when we actually get down to $4 books pretty soon. Uh, this one hit the racks on November 6th, 2019. Now we open up in flashback. Uh, Professor Xavier and Storm are present as a mutant emerges from one of those, uh, you know, gold ball eggs, or I guess egg eggs nowadays. Uh, it's Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane. And uh, A... It's so weird saying Rain because in my head it always sounds like Ronnie or Ronnie, but it is Rain. Uh, people have uh, people have outnumbered me on that. And B, I totally don't remember her dying. Um, though, as I've said many, many times, I've been away a little while. Uh, my research instincts really—they tell me I ought to find out how and when the, you know she passed, but I really don't want to spoil myself on anything. It's, uh, you know, I find, like, anytime you try to look up information on comics, it's kind of... People who read comics want you to know what they know, and they want you to know that they knew it before you. Uh, it's kind of like if you were to, like, watch a TV show or a movie 
uh, like sitting on a couch next to someone who already saw it. And like as a scene starts, like, oh, well, this is the scene where this happens. And you're just sitting there like, just let me watch it. <laughs> let me enjoy it. You don't need to ruin the whole thing. I believe you when you said you saw it. Uh, just like I believe people when they say they read it. Anywho, we meet up with Rain in the now where she looks to be completely at peace. She's soon joined by Shan, or Karma, and they have themselves a chat. Karma invokes concepts like the self and faith and offers Rain an ear anytime she might need one. And Rain's all, eh, I'm over it. So, uh, part of me wonders, uh, or actually all of me wonders, uh, does this mean she no longer has her strong faith? Um, I mean, that was a very, that was like a core part of her character for most of her existence, uh, but I suppose, you know, actually dying might just change the way a person views the afterlife. So <laughs> we can allow it. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on here. But first, let's meet our cast. Karma and Wolfsbane Natch. Uh, Mondo, Cypher, Mirage, Sunspot, Chamber, and Magic. Then we get our double page spread at creds. Then we scoot off elsewhere and we catch up with Mondo and Cypher. Which, you know, as a, as a teenager in the 90s, this is a pair that I never thought I'd see occupy the same panel space, you know? Uh, now, Doug is trying to have... Uh, he's having Mondo try to use his Earth-based powers to communicate or to maybe absorb some of the island itself. And it ain't working out. Then Doug's like, well, we're all here. Maybe Krakoa can try on his end. And, uh, and Krakoa does that, taking over Mondo's body and causes a really gross Krakoa face to appear on his big old belly. Uh, now, the face then begins to speak. Krakoa proclaims that he ain't digging this either, and he vacates. Uh, this leaves a very confused Mondo, who promises to punch Doug in the face should he ever suggest such an experiment ever again, and... Doug's all, yeah, my bad, he accepts it. We next shift scenes over to the sextant at the Akadamos Habitat. Here we join Danny and Roberto. They give each other a quick and dirty expository chat about mutant history, which, for my taste, doesn't give me near enough new to go on. Uh, though, uh, for someone who is A, better adjusted, and B, coming in cold, I'm sure this was more than enough. As they walk and talk, we see them passing folks like Glob Herman from Zorn's special class, also, Monet and the Penance twins, and uh, a group of Hellions that looks like a mixture of the original Frost students and those from the, you know, Academy X era New X-Men. And uh, I'm kind of lost on the Penance twins thing. I, I thought M was now going by Penance and was able to, like, shape-shift into Penance? Uh, I really don't know, though I will concede that the M story confuses me even on my best day, and I suppose today is not that day. We follow Danny and Berto into their Krakoan dorm, where they're greeted by Magic and Chamber. They're another pair who was a kid I never thought I'd see on panel together. Uh, I mean, Magic was, you know, reverted back to, a, to her youth and died of the legacy virus before Chamber was even a thing, so never thought I'd see them together. Uh, anywho, they reveal that there's this new kid named Fauna who figured out a way to create Krakoan coffee, complete with the flavor of innocence and sincerity. Well, I guess there's another thing off of Logan's shopping list. Uh, you know, before long, Call Me Kate's not going to have to make any extra stops while she's out in the wild. So that's that's a good thing. Now, Eliana is, like, totally cracked out on the coffee, and she's hogging it all to herself. Um, now, it's worth noting here, and throughout this issue, 
Many of the Ilyana panels have this like weird and like wonderful Sienkiewicz-esque flair to them. Uh, it's hard to really explain it any other way. It's really awesome, though. Now, the friends are then joined by Rain, Shan, Mondo, and Doug, and they all have a cup. Well, Mondo passes, actually, because he saw exactly how the beans were made, and, uh, well, we'll just leave that there. While everyone chats and has a grand old time, we pop over to Danny and Berto, who are sidebarring about the conspicuous lack of Sam. Now, Sam Guthrie, if I'm remembering right, got hitched and had a bunch of kids up in Shi'ar space during one of the, like, 800 Avengers books that was coming out every month around the time of Secret Wars, you know, 2015. And I tell you, that was a horrible time to be an Avengers completionist, which uh, which I was. Uh, so many damn books. And uh, and only like one or two actually worth owning, much less reading. You know, Marvel milked that property so hard, it, it was squirting dust. You know, it was pretty, uh, it was well milked. Um, anyway, they missed their pal, and so Sunspot suggests that maybe they all go for a ride. Next thing we know, the New Mutants are on board the Starjammer. Now remember, Scott and the gang gave Corsair a Cohen gateway plant over in X-Men number 1, which we discussed in episode 13. Now Corsair warns the kids that the Starjammers and the Shi'ar ain't exactly the best of buds, and so he'll drop the kids off somewhere at the edge of Shi'ar space. So they're going to have to find uh, their way to Cannonball's place in Chandelier from there. Birdo's down with the plan. After all, he's got a pocket full of money, and he's sure they'll find a ride. Mondo and Doug break away to take a look at the Starjammer's Arboretum. Mondo says he likes this dirt a lot more than Krakoa's because Krakoa's is itchy. Okay. Uh, now Doug's gateway flower begins to communicate with the actual gateway, and this is confirmed by Chad or Chad, who has been taking particular care in the Arboretum of late. You see, he spent the better part of the last decade trying to grow something called pomum. Now, pomum is explained as being a delicacy from his whole home planet that only ripens every ten years. And, as a misfortune would have it, this Krakoan gateway flower that Cypher's carrying is causing the pomum to perish. Thinking quick, Doug jams the flower into Mondo's belly. Like, literally. He doesn't, like, feed it to him. He just jams it into the big guy's earthy, girthy gut. The Pomums might be saved, but Chad is still very much annoyed. We jump ahead several days, and uh, we're going to talk about the logistics of this in a bit. Um, Magic and Raza are having a duel while the rest of the Jammers and New Muse cheer on. Worth noting here that Hepzibah is, like, uncharacteristically annoyed by the kids. Like, real sourpuss, which I don't really recall being in her character. Um, I mean, she seemed perfectly pleased at Summer House a couple episodes back, and... I think for a while she, or not for a while, but she had a stint as an X-Man, you know, earlier in the decade, or last decade, I suppose. Anyway, they're all watching. Roberto and Corsair, they decide to place a bet on the fight, which is a bottle of Kentucky bourbon. After a couple of pages of fighting and chatting, Magic, in a very Sienkiewicz-y panel, slices off Raz's robot arm. So she's declared the winner, and poor Corsair has to hand over his prized bourbon to Sunspot. The next day, the Starjammer arrives at a place called Benevolence, and it's on the very edge of Shi'ar space. Corsair describes the place as being the ass of the Empire. He informs Sunspot that the Jammer's gotta make a stop here to do some pirating. 
Sunspot offers to come along, but he's told in no uncertain terms that the new Muse are to remain on board. Sunspot argues a bit, claiming to have a wicked space lawyer in case they get in trouble, but Corsair is not willing to budge. We jump from here into a pair of info pages. Uh, they're, they're fun, though. Uh, the first of which is a wanted poster for the Starjammers. Uh, looks like the bounty on Corsair's head is 2.5 million whatever-the-hell currency they use in Shi'ar space. It's denoted as SC, so maybe Shi'ar currency, Shi'ar credits, Shi'ar coin... Yeah, that'd be a lot of coin. Uh, Worth noting that that little fuzzy bird thing that hangs out on Chad's shoulder that came with his action figure back in the day, Curry, is only worth 500 creds. That's too bad. Next info page explains a little bit about benevolence. It's described as basically a place where the Shi'ar store their exotic junk. Uh, There's a special note here about something called the King Egg, and we hear that mishandling this bugger could lead to something called the Super Guardian Protocols, which now I'm now almost 100% certain is something we're going to see. Uh, Corsair fills in the rest of the kids on why they need to remain on the Starjammer while they go to work. Now, he tells them that benevolence is full of four-armed fundamentalists, and I think this was supposed to be far funnier than it actually wound up being though it does give us Rain calling out judgy fundamentalists as being the worst thing she can imagine, so perhaps that's another hint that she's not the same, you know, God-fearing Rain of before. Now, the kids complain about wanting to stretch their legs, which, I don't know, begs the question, why the hell are they still on board to begin with? Isn't there a Krakoan gateway on this ship that could take them home? Like, can't they just go home and come back when the Starjammer's a little closer to their destination? I really don't get the logistics of this trip here. Uh, I mean, I'm going to assume to get on the ship in the first place, they took the gateway, right? Am I not supposed to be thinking that? or I don't know. It just feels like, hey, you know, give us a ring when you're in, uh, when you're by the Shi'ar space and we'll pop on in. Or maybe they just stick their head in every few hours. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I don't know. But, uh... Anyway, no sooner do the Jammers leave than the new Muse decide that they're going to follow him anyway. Birdo tells them to settle their tea kettles and suggests that maybe instead of leaving, eh, maybe they'll they'll just imbibe in some of his newly earned prize bourbon. The kids agree to get plastered, but as soon as Birdo's out of sight to get the drink, they leave anyway. Five minutes later, Roberto returns to an empty room and he, uh, he wonders why he was surprised. So, where are the rest of the kids? Well, it looks like they're about to swipe that king egg thing. The Starjammers enter the scene and warn them to stand down. According to Raza, the kids are, quote, messing with things beyond their mortal ken. Danny calls them out about lying about the forearm fundies, which is kind of dumb. And so, Corsair calls them out for, well, being dumb. The Starjammers are pirates, and they steal stuff. It's their whole gimmick. Of course he was lying. He was just trying to get them out of their hair so they can go steal this king egg thing. Uh, Raza grabs the king eggs, king egg, and the jammers jam out. The kids go to follow. However, some Shi'ar guards get in their way. Corsair decides that these kids have gotten themselves in this mess, and, uh, well, they're going to have to find a way out of it themselves as well. The kids find themselves trapped behind a pillar of sorts while the Shi'ar types keep blasting their blasters in their direction. Chamber decides enough's enough and jumps into view to... I don't know, freak the Shi'ars out with his crazy half-face? Whatever it was. Back on board, the Jammers inform Berto as to what just went down. 
Sunspot's all, all right, let's go save my friends. Corsair's all, nope. He informs Berto that uh, there really is no we in this situation, and the new mutants were, uh, they're most definitely being left behind. Berto pleads for a bit, asking why they deserve such a fate. Chad cites the death of his plants. Hepzibah cites the kids being annoying. Raza cites magic cutting off his arm. And Corsair cites Roberto stealing his whiskey. Sunspot can really only speak to that last one, saying to Corsair that he, you know, he lost that whiskey fair and square. To which Corsair rebuts with, well, I lost that, but you lost your ride. And with that, Sunspot is unceremoniously kicked off the Starjammer. He takes the last swig of bourbon and kind of winks at the reader that he's, uh, you know, about to save the day. One page later, he sh- surrenders to the Shi'ar. Now, Danny ain't pleased, but Berto reminds her that he's got this really, really good space lawyer, which takes us to our final page, which is an info page that gives us an advertisement for space lawyer Murd Blurdock, which uh, I'll admit is, is pretty cute. Alrighty, so let's have a swig of some ill-gotten bourbon or some maybe innocence-flavored coffee and talk about this. I had an absolute blast with this issue. Um, I'm sitting here trying to think of a single thing that happened here that I didn't enjoy, and I can't. Uh, This felt like an actual New Mutants comic. Uh, Even with the sort of amalgamated team of Young Mutants involved, we have, you know, Gen Xers in there, too. But uh, this issue felt very much like home. Uh, And it was an issue where I, you know, maybe just a case of me getting over myself, I didn't need to worry about neurotically fitting in bits of continuity, right? I was just able to sit back and just dig this issue. It was was really, really good. You know, one thing I definitely want to give these Dawn of X titles is they're giving us some very fun teams. Think back to a couple episodes ago, Marauders, that's a fun team. Even Excalibur, which really didn't blow me away, has a really solid cast of characters. Uh, I'm not sure who the flagship flagship X-Men title will ultimately feature, though if it were the cast we saw in the first issue, I wouldn't be upset. I mean, these we're getting some fun teams here. This amalgamated New Mutants Gen X team is, is pretty solid. I like it a lot. I gotta say, the art here was ridiculous. I absolutely loved it. Clean and stylized, with this dash of Sienkiewicz thrown in at key moments, just phenomenal. I hope Rice or Reese. I hope I figure out how to say your name first of all, but I also hope you stay on this book for its entire run. It it was just oh, it was amazing, amazing stuff here. Now the interaction between these characters felt completely natural, and it also felt as though this book was written by actual fans of the New Mutants and Generation X as well. I really dig seeing Roberto in a sort of leadership role. I mean, we're used to seeing him more as, like, the hot-headed guy who really doesn't worry about rules or, you know, mores. And here he is trying to trying to be the leader. I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm also really enjoying him and Danny together. Um, I think that this uh, there are a lot of possibilities there. I like that. Uh, Magic was a lot of fun here Though the coffee binge scene might have been a little too cute Um, Shan Didn't do a heck of a lot Uh, It's only the first issue But uh, That's usually what I think think, What I think when I see Shan Is that hey she's probably not going to do a lot I I can think of Like very few times where she stood out 
Um, you know, of course, during the original New Mutants run, there were there were bits with her, you know, growing to you know immense, morbidly obese sizes, and there were just story beats that featured her. Um, even when she made her guest appearance in, I want to say it was X Force seventy five, the Burning Man issue, she showed a lot of characterization there. Uh, here, eh, she's just kind of there. Um, now, Rain. Let's talk about Rain here for a bit. Now, she's one I'm pretty interested in seeing where where she goes here. First of all, like I said, I didn't know she died. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of the last time I saw her, and I, it might have been like in. X-Factor, or all-new X-Factor, if she was part of that team, but I don't remember her dying. Though, I mean, I I doubt they made up her death, so I'm I'm guessing it happened in a book I just didn't read, or just a book that didn't remain with me. Uh, Now, second of all, I wonder how her resurrection is going to play into her faith. Uh, There are a few interesting ways I think they can go with her. And I gotta say, at this point, I think I have enough faith in in Hickman and company uh, that I'm pretty sure they'll treat this with subtlety and respect. Uh, I mean, faith is a sticky subject to discuss, and it's easy to discount, um, and it's easy to uh, just dismiss. But I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that, or I'm confident that Hickman will uh, be more subtle and uh, respectful than that, though I have been wrong before. Now, the addition of the Gen- Generation X kids was cool. I, I always enjoy seeing Chamber. Uh, Chamber was one of the cooler character designs of the mid-90s, I think. Uh, he's always just very, very striking uh, character uh, model there. Mondo, uh, Mondo I don't know all that well. He uh, wasn't with Generation X all that long before he was revealed as uh, you know Black Tom Spy or whatever it was. I think that was around Gen X 25 or so. Now, I don't know if he made any sort of comeback over the last couple of years, or if maybe just the dart landed on his name when they were putting the team together. Whatever the case, though, I do I do think he fits in good here. I like that, uh, I mean, we're dealing with Krakoa, we're dealing with greenery, we're dealing with Earth, and uh, that's kind of his gimmick. So, makes perfect sense for him to be here. It's always neat to see Doug. Uh, Doug is, uh, Doug is like a... Like the ultimate like straight character He's a straight man character Where he could just play off of any character Maybe that's part of his mutant talent <laughs> You know, he can he can communicate with anything But he can also play off of anything I, I find him an interesting character If they don't go too far with uh, Like overcompensating with how Ineffective his power is in battle I, I think there's a lot of fun there Overall, New Mutants number one was damn solid uh, damn solid, and uh, it might might even be in the running for the strongest first issue of the line with me. So, had a blast. Loved to read it, loved to look at it. The words, the art, everything was really, really good here. And uh, tomorrow, we're going to be taking a look at X-Force number one. So, uh, it, it almost uh, makes too much sense to go right from the New Mutants to X-Force. But we'll see what the new look X-Force is going to be all about. I'm seeing some... Very un x force characters on this cover here I mean, we got Jean, Colossus Well, Colossus was part of X-Force for a little bit But seeing Jean on there is kind of weird uh, Wolverine, of course, he's going to be on every team probably But uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes But before I let you goes, Got one piece of feedback we're going to discuss today And it's from my, my good friend and uh, 
regular broadcast colleague, Chris Bailey, at Charlton underscore hero, of course. And he's delivered some hox pox thoughts here. And uh, I was really looking forward to getting these because he, like me, is a lapsed X-Fan. And uh, he says as much in his opening line, so let's get right to it. He says, as a lapsed fan as well, this book was a roller coaster of likes and dislikes. He's going to start with the dislikes. One, length. There were too many info pages. Some did service to the book, but other pages, like the quote pages, were just inexcusable. This was a six-issue book only. It went way too long here. And I, I, I mostly agree. I mean, there was definitely... There were definitely pangs of decompression to play here. Um, a lot of scenes were repeated, and uh, plus, so many of those, you know, X to the third power scenes were, were pretty drawn out to the point where it felt like it felt like Hickman was just impressing himself with with silly words, and he wanted to keep going. He wanted to hear himself talk. Uh, this would, uh, you know, Hoxpox would have been a damn solid six issue overall series, though I, I could probably push it to 8, uh, 10 at the absolute most. It did not need 12. Uh, it certainly didn't need 12. I mean, 10 probably would have worked better because you can play up the whole Mora X thing and the, the just X in general being 10 and the powers of 10, you know. But, uh, yeah, 12 was too long. I, I think I mentioned during the Powers of X number 6 review uh, back in episode 12 that... You know, there were like eight new pages there Because they it, all it was was two scenes that they replayed You know, we started with with Mora and Charles at the, the festival Then we got a little bit from the future We got a little bit in the near present with uh, Mora's No Place And then we jumped to the party at the end So it felt like we really didn't need that issue for that We could have We could have cut some other scenes down And easily cut at least two issues out of the thing But... I mean, what's done is done, and, and it's also current year comics. It's just the way it's going to be. And those quote pages, yeah, those were rough. Uh, not, I mean, they weren't rough because they were just a line, but I'm trying to digest that and trying to reconcile the fact that these were $5 books and uh, they were filling pages with single-line quotes just to make their, their page quota to justify the price was... It felt a little insulting. If if I can remove like the fan of me out of this and just look at it as a you know simple dollars and cents thing, which isn't always the easiest thing to do, but then again, sometimes it's uh it's the hardest thing not to do when when it comes to certain books. Uh, back to uh, Chris's email, he says, uh, "People being out of character, three characterizations that were completely foreign to me." He's going to start with Mister Sinister being fabulous. When did he become a slippery, low-rent comedy act? Could not stand this. <laughs> and I said it, you know, time and again during the second half of Hoxbox. The take on Sinister was one who really stuck out to me uh, the most as well. That's definitely not the Sinister I rem- remember from, like, any time in my fandom. That isn't to say I didn't... Like, I didn't... I, I laughed. You know, I, I can't say I didn't laugh at a lot of his lines because they were funny. And maybe it was just the juxtaposition of seeing this character that I've built up as being this, like, ungodly evil being fabulous. Uh, <laughs> maybe it was just the juxtaposition that got me, but it was very strange, and it didn't feel... It didn't feel right. This wasn't the guy who showed up in Inferno. You know, it was very strange. 
Uh, the next one Chris Br- calls out is Storm the Cult Leader, who was intentionally made to look like pop star Rihanna. And you made me run back to the long box here and flip through the issues, but yeah, yeah, she does look a bit like Rihanna. I totally missed out on that the first time around. Um, the odd cultiness of her presentation of the Resurrectees is another one of those things that stuck out to me since the original, you know, the initial reading. It felt very much out of character and. I just overall overall very uncomfortable. I mean she's acting so strange but everyone around is cheering. I mean it uh, I'd say it wouldn't it didn't pass my smell test but my batting average when it comes to making predictions isn't exactly major league quality anyway but it's it's very out of character and people are cheering her on for it. Very strange. Uh, the third character Chris calls out is Wolverine. He says, the kid, the kid-friendly, the kid fun-loving fool. And I mentioned this one early, too. Uh, this is another one that jumped out. Uh, now knowing all we know about the resurrection process, part of me wonders, and, I, and I, I am, you know, Magneto called me a cynic. I, I am a cynic. Uh, part of me wonders if maybe there have been a bunch of Wolverine resurrections. You know, um, also, you know, that cynical part can't help but wonder how much Xavier might be influencing these characters. And I mean, influencing either by tinkering with their data during Resurrection, maybe like we talked about the other day, um, you know, Wolverine has problems with aggression. Well, maybe we can roll back something. Maybe we can play with this data. Maybe we can put another bit in here to make him a little kinder and gentler. So maybe he's tinkering with their data for each resurrection, or maybe he's just wriggling his way into their minds. It's, that's, you know, definitely not out of character for Xavier. Uh, Wayne Booth uh, wrote in early uh, on this run of episodes to suggest that the weirdness that we find in that scene might be due to the fact that we never get to see the X-Men happy. And I still believe he might be onto something there. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it were any other character but Wolverine, I, I don't think I'd have batted an eye, but, but it was Wolverine. Which felt very, very weird. Um, but uh, Wayne's, you know, Wayne's suggestion that we're just not used to seeing them happy—that's that's very possible. That's very possible here. I might be looking for things where there's nothing there. It might just be a, I don't know, a scene that Hickman wanted to put in there. Uh, another thing that Bailey did not like: the librarian and the failing scenes could have been removed and very easily be something more pertinent to X lore. I'm not a fan of them of retconning them into the big beds and diminishing all the famous ex-rogues as just obstacles to, uh, by the time they reveal themselves. Awful, awful stuff here. Yeah, the X3 stuff was a toughie, and I, I know I haven't shut up about it. <laughs> I've made my thoughts clear. Uh, well, I'd say clear, but as clear as my thoughts can be anyway about the far-flung future here. I was not a fan. Um... I I really feel like that's, you know, I'm not a Legion of Superheroes fan, and that felt like a Legion of Superheroes story. Uh, you know, future or not. Um, another thing Bailey did not like, the X-Eggs and Major Deaths. In a book where Wolverine, Cyclops, Archangel, and many other main X-characters die, I did not feel there were any reason to worry because they'd be right back. And they were. They hatched from eggs. Eggs? The idea itself is mind-boggling, and on the surface level, I hate the thought of it. Yeah, now Hickman and company definitely tipped their hand a bit when they offed the entire 
A-list X-Men team uh, during that Mother Mold mission. Um, when when they landed, or when they were you know shot at, and Archangel and Husk died. Well, those are characters I could see dying for a little while. Those are characters I can see going away and taking off the taking off the table for a bit. I, you know, they're archangels. I, I guess archangel. You could say he's an A-lister. Husk is not. But I mean, if we're doing this grand sweeping story here, and you got to get an A-lister off, I mean, off the table, archangels as good as any. But uh, I feel like. In the course of that issue, the pendulum, you know, we had this pendulum swinging, and it passed, it swung right past, uh-oh, to, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, when you just killed one or two, or maybe Mystique being, you know, jettisoned from the, uh, from the satellite, you know, that's when you're thinking, like, uh-oh, how are they going to fix this? But then when everybody dies, you're like, oh, okay, well, they're going to fix this. They're definitely going to fix this. So, took a bit of the steam out for, uh, for, you know, in as far as... You know, the ever-present and nebulous stakes. Now, Bailey goes on to the positives. The art on House of X. These X-Men looked perfect. And I mean, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez types are perfect. There's the right mix of uh, comic classic, yet movie somewhat accurate. Pepe Larraz is a star. House of X looked visually stunning. Agreed 100%. 100%. Larraz killed it. Just, uh... I wish we had uh, we had Larez on, on one of the ongoings because that was just phenomenal work. Another thing he liked was resetting the bar. The X Island of Krakoa establishing an X status quo, a mutant council made up of classic X-Men and the rogues. Apocalypse joining the X-Men was amazing. Magneto and Xavier working in tandem was great as well. Agreed. Agreed. Um, that... Uh, that mutant council, the Quiet Council of Krakoa, that was, uh, I believe that was House of X number six as well. Just that that issue that gave gave me chills, you know. Um, that's That was one of those scenes that was just, I think the way I put it was it, it, it was so wrong it, it couldn't help but feel right. And, and I, I, I stand by that for sure. Uh, the next thing he liked was Mora's story. The many deaths of Mora were meaningful and purposeful. Her meeting with Charles on the park bench was great. Uh, when we discovered that her role was key in saving the future of our heroes, I loved it. Yes, yes, definitely. The Uncanny Lives of Mora X was definitely a valuated piece to the X lore. And I won't lie to you, I was a bit uneasy about it to start. I was like, what are they doing? Why are we? Oh my. You know, I don't know if I made it terribly clear during the episode, but the first time I read that, I read that... I read that last year for the first time, and I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, first, first, you know, the fact that Mora was was a mutant in the first place was enough to, like, really pull me out of it, because that was her whole thing, is that she wasn't a mutant, you know? So that was what initially knocked me, you know, for a loop. And then, you know, you add the, the resurrection power and and all the memories and... I mean, you get to the point where you, if, if you're able to accept it, it becomes a wonderful piece uh, and just such a uh, wonderful uh, narrative tool. And I definitely think, I think there's going to be more to her story, and I, I, I can't wait to see it. Um, fourth, the fourth thing he liked was uh, the team all together now. 
He loved the mutants all aligning, the good, the bad, the council, the celebration. Dazzler, you know, Dan doing the singing, there's Pyro, there's Havoc, tons of other X-Men. It was an all-star scene. It was epic. And I tell you what, that scene was a bit of a toughie for me to get through. Um, I wasn't expecting it to draw that much emotion out of me, but I'll be damned if it didn't. It was just a, a beautiful scene. And I, oh man, just the feelings that were going on when I saw those characters interacting again and just just being delighted with each other's company. You know, we had resurrectees, we had the standbys, we had A-list, B-list, C-list. It was just, it was perfect. It was as close to perfect as you're going to get. And, um... Uh, I haven't felt that way reading a comic book since uh, the the Barry Allen Wally West hug during DC Universe Rebirth number one, and that one I, I've done a few episodes on on this channel, and I usually have to stop the recording as I read that one out because it it, it affects me really really hard, and and we came close with this uh, with this party scene. I thought I was gonna have to stop because man, it was strong. It was strong. I absolutely loved it. Um, I've said House of X number six gave me chills numerous occasions. I was not kidding. Uh, that was that's a hundred percent truth. Um, loved that scene. Loved that scene. I'm not sure we needed to see it twice, but I loved it. Another thing he liked was the future X Men. I just dug these new characters. I initially thought the End Game was a brand new group of X Men. I'm glad it sort of worked out. Yeah, Hickman won me over with the Year One Hundred crew. Um. I was expecting to absolutely hate... The, actually, you know what? Maybe hate's a strong term. Uh, I was expecting not to care at all. I was expecting to just skim those pages and just, you know, get me to the people I know, you know? Uh, but by the time they were taken off the table, I actually really liked them. And uh, oddly enough, we only knew them for maybe, what, 15, 20 pages total? And their being wiped out actually felt like a loss, which really speaks to, uh, to Hickman's ability and, and characterization. Um, and, and, of course, you know, the character designs. The, the, the designs were strong, and the idea, the chimera, and the, uh, you know, it's a, it was a good idea. It was a real good idea. Now, uh, Bailey wraps up his message with, Overall, I loved the heck out of this story. Thanks for doing the show. It really feels good to at least understand a current-day X-book. Let's read some more. To which I say, here, here. <laughs> I, uh, we're all about it. We're going to keep going as, uh, as far as we can go. And, uh, and I'm having a good time. I'm having a good time reacquainting with these characters. And also, uh, hearing from, from folks who are doing the same or who... Haven't left yet, you know It's it's a very good time This is a very fun project And it's a very uh, satisfying and rewarding project For me on, on so many levels I get to I get to chat with people I get to rediscover this, uh, this property That I have loved for over 30 years I get to actually have them again You know, where I didn't for a few years And I never thought I'd be going back I thought I was done 100% never picking up an X-Men book, much less a, Mar a Marvel book, much less an X-Men book. You know, I, I thought I was just 100% done. But I guess what they say is true. You, you know, <laughs> you always come back. And I, I am uh, proof of that. 
But that's where we're going to leave it for today. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find writings at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com or the Xlapsed page at xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com All the show notes are there. You can listen to the shows in order. Uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com is the main feed where you can find all of our audio exploits for the past five years. Um, those are not in order, though. <laughs> those take a little doing. I am in the process of making subdomains for every program on that channel, so it'll be a little bit easier to traverse. But uh, that is a lot of work, and... Blogger is not exactly the most user-friendly at the moment, so it'll get there, and I'll keep updating as I go along. But I'll stop yammering now. We're two-thirds of the way through the number ones here. Just got X-Force and Fallen Angels to go, and we'll get those real, real soon. So thank you all for hanging out. I really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you all for reaching out. You don't know what that means to me. And uh, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.